Hi, and welcome to the Story of Software podcast. Today, we are joined by Chris Brook, who's co-founder of Finborn Technology. Chris, how are you today? I'm very good. Thank you for inviting me. Very welcome. So today, we're going to talk about being fit for purpose. And really, what we're going to dive into is a discussion on, I suppose, the ways in which companies need to change and evolve as they grow, and particularly as you go from that early stage to more established company. Chris is a co-founder and engineer of Finborn Technology. Finborn builds tools that power investment data processes for everyone from startup fund managers to global investment institutions. Companies coming up on five years of age, I think, pretty soon, and has grown to over 100 employees over the past, I guess, four and a half years. Chris, maybe to kick off, you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your path with Finborn. Yeah, sure. So my career in software engineering started, I guess, about 16 years ago. The last 10 years, I've been working in the kind of financial services sector. I was fortunate enough to be invited to join Finborn right at the start when there was only six or seven of us. And my role has always kind of been back and forth between quite hands-on technical roles and then doing more kind of tech leading and kind of management positions. My background was, you know, I'd spent a few years working in some of the investment banks, working on kind of risk systems and some of their internal valuation systems. And when we came to kind of set up Finborn, what we were trying to do on one hand was to take some of the cool technology that we've been fortunate enough to work on within the banks. And we were thinking, how can we kind of bring this to the asset management industry? Because ultimately, it's the asset managers who are kind of looking after everyone's pension funds and things like this. And to try and see, you know, how can we go about fundamentally reducing the cost of investing for everybody? And we were thinking with kind of the adoption of cloud computing becoming a bit more prevalent in some of these big institutions, we saw a really good opportunity to take that technology and put it on a platform, you know, software as a service, and really kind of bring a lot of that new technology to those customers to try and make it cheaper to do their business. And the kind of moral aspect of this was that, you know, if we can even just reduce some of those costs that get levied on, you know, people's pension funds by even a small amount, thanks to the kind of you know, power of compounding interest and things, you can actually have quite a significant impact on literally the size of people's pension pots, you know, and obviously with the kind of growing population and increasingly elderly population, there's quite an attractive kind of moral aspect of what we were trying to achieve. That's a really interesting point. And I guess, Chris, that's probably one of the things you need to call upon when you're getting people excited about working at a startup is some sort of sense of mission. Was that something that was front and center in your thinking when you were setting up the business? Or was that a nice additionality, like, oh, actually, on top of building a cool company, there's actually something very good about what we're doing? Certainly, when, when we were trying to hire those, those first tranche of people, the first set of people we had were almost hand-picked. It was, you know, former colleagues and, and people that we knew and trusted. And, and we all had a similar kind of enthusiasm for technology and for building kind of high-quality systems. But certainly that vision was really compelling when it came to trying to hire new people. And I think as well, you know, it potentially resonates with some of our customers as well. So, and it's great to kind of have a good vision like that that we can always kind of come back to. Chris, before we talk about some of the technological aspects to, um, to what you guys have been doing, what was your experience going from the investment banking world into the startup company world? Like, was this your first experience in startup world? Yeah, it was. Some of the banks are obviously huge organizations, you know, tens of thousands of employees. I've worked in some medium-sized companies as well, but this was certainly the first startup I'd done. Um, I think at the time, I wasn't anticipating it being as big a change as it was. It wasn't a change in a bad way, but being out of those big organizations and working in a smaller company where you've got a lot more control over, over your own destiny, I suppose. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably hooked at this point, I think. 
actually, uh, I worked in a startup environment, then I went to do a Fortune 500 company, and then I went back to startup land. Yeah. And uh, you kind of get a taste for just, I suppose, a certain level of autonomy and that the human scale of interaction is really important as well, I think, when you're in a smaller organization. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about things from a technological aspects. What do you think is important when you're a company of a few versus a, a much larger engineering organization in terms of, let's say, architecture and processes? Yeah, great question. So I think all of us are really proud of what we've achieved over the last kind of four years or so. And one of the benefits of being able to start from a completely kind of clean sheet of paper is that a lot of us were able to put in place a lot of the kind of modern practices that we always wanted to do in some of these bigger organizations, but weren't necessarily always able to. So we were able to adopt continuous integration, continuous deployment. You know, we follow in a pull request merge review kind of paradigm, you know, all of our code changes get peer reviewed and we've got a completely automated release pipeline, which means that after it's been reviewed and once it's been merged in, subject to it passing all of those quality gates we've laid down, it goes straight to production. And it was one of the big kind of experiments, I suppose, that we were doing. None of us had kind of worked on something that was so automated in the past. And this idea of kind of having, you know, we don't have any testers employed full capacity. You know, all the testing is done by the development team. So, you know, right now we're in a position where, you know, we're probably between five and 10 releases a day to production. You know, we're pushing about 100 changes a week. And I think even our customers are sometimes find that a bit scary. And, and you know, it's interesting looking at some of the grads who've kind of joined the team who rightly so kind of get frustrated, you know, when they can't get a change out in an afternoon because maybe we've got some pipeline blockages and things like that. It's always great for those of us who've worked in some of these other organizations that maybe used to get a release out every three months or something. I think that being able to put all of that machinery in place from day one has been really, really powerful. But I think the challenge that we found as the companies got bigger is how do we continue to kind of maintain those levels of productivity? When we started, it was quite a small team and everyone was quite autonomous. Everyone was generally quite experienced. So you didn't need a whole lot of coordination between the engineers. Most people would kind of do the right thing just through experience. But what we found as we started to add more people into the team, certainly on the engineering side, you know, you start to see that kind of model start to kind of creak a little bit. And part of the challenge that we found, I guess, recently talking about kind of an architecture perspective, you know, Lucid, our platform is quite a data intensive platform. And part of the nature of that is how it works. I'll just quickly dip into that a little bit because it's kind of interesting. We've built a kind of proprietary database engine that's underneath Lucid. The motivation for doing that was to try and come up with a solution to this auditability and reproducibility problems that a lot of financial services and asset management companies want. So we basically built this event source database. It allows us to kind of recreate the history of what's happened kind of at any point in time. Um, And that's kind of what we've tried to build. So bi-temporality is really where you've got two dates on every bit of information. So one is the date that it kind of happened in real life. And the second is the date where you recorded it in the system. So to kind of give an example, if you're booking a table in a restaurant, you might book it for for next Saturday night, but you actually record it on the online booking system today, you know, on Friday or something. So we've got these two bits of data, the date that the system saw it and the date that it was valid for in real life. And that gets quite powerful because you can start doing things like backdated corrections. So you can say, actually, I guess like COVID, for example, somebody, somebody forgot to kind of do the track and trace thing and, you know, to book into the restaurant that they visited last week, where you could go and retrospectively, you could say, okay, um, I'm going to check in, you know, I'm going to say I checked into the restaurant, you know, last Saturday. 
And how this applies to the kind of asset management industry is that um, if you imagine those events are the transactions of, of these asset managers, you know, buying and selling assets into their portfolio, by storing all that information as a sequence of events that have happened, you can reproduce the contents of those portfolios or, or the state of any of those systems there. So not only can you kind of say, show me what was in my portfolio at the closing hours of you know, last month today, you can also say, you know, what did that report look like on that day? And the difference being is, you know, one of those has potentially got some corrections in that were made, you know, after the report was generated. And the other one is the, the kind of the original version. And by kind of storing all the data in this kind of immutable ledger, we get that reproducibility. But the downside with that is it's really data intensive. We put some sophisticated caches in to try and avoid the risk of you having to replay all these events to figure out what the current state is. But in the worst case scenario, you, you literally have to kind of start at the beginning of time and say, okay, you know, I bought this thing, I sold this thing, and, and keep running through that stream of changes until you get to the date that you're interested in. Now, because we knew we were going to have these potentially quite large volumes of data going back and forth, the application itself started off as quite a monolithic application. And the, the motivation for that was to try and keep as much of that data in process. So, you know, you can get fast access to memory. You're not having to do kind of expensive hops between machines and between databases. And we spent quite a lot of time making that quite efficient. But naturally, with the application structured as a kind of monolithic application, the code base followed that as well. And, and what we've been finding recently is with single build pipeline and increasingly large numbers of people making changes to the code base at the same time. Um, Inevitably, people sometimes make mistakes and the risk of blocking things just get higher. And I think right now, that's one of the kind of biggest tensions that we've got as the company's grown to around about 100 employees is that concentration of change with everyone trying to contribute to the code base at the same time is proving a bit problematic. I'd love to ask about um, the technology stack and choices that were made maybe at the start and maybe how some of those choices might have changed over time. Yeah, exactly. That's a great question. So I think because the register technology that we built was brand new, it was something that we borrowed some ideas from some technologies that we'd seen, but it, it was really quite groundbreaking at the time. We appreciated we were taking quite a lot of technical risk with it to bottom out before we could put anything live. And I think in that context, we played it safe on a lot of other aspects. So, uh, you know, just to give a concrete example, you know, we could have looked at, you know, some of the big data platforms like Cassandra or something like that to fundamentally store the data in. But in practice, we were thinking, actually, you know, we've got a load of people who've got a lot of experience with a plain good old relational database. So, you know, we chose Postgres. It's open source. We don't have to pay a lot of licensing fees for it, which is great as a new startup. And and, and we've stuck with that. But getting to the point now where, you know, we're starting to find the limits of, of how far we can push Postgres as a, as a database engine. And now that we've kind of de-risked a lot of those other technologies, you know, we've got a little bit more time now to consider maybe moving to something that gives us a lot more scalability. Um, as we start to onboard additional clients, you know, we don't have to be worrying so much about physically how we're going to scale that on the back end. Chris, I'd also love to hear maybe some of the key milestones or stages in the evolution of the business. So We've heard just a little bit, you know, I believe there was six or seven of you to begin with. When did the growth happen? What were the kind of key milestones in the business? So it's actually been a relatively kind of steady growth throughout. And I think the biggest limiting factor that we found has been a combination of money, obviously, which is always a challenge for startups, but also just the rate that we could hire people and onboard them. So I think when we started, it was very much an engineering led company, you know, almost everyone in the team 
uh, had some kind of software development experience, not necessarily recently in their career, but you know, a, a large portion of the team were hands-on engineers. And then as the team gradually gets bigger, you know, you finally start having to gradually ramp up some of those supporting functions, you know, sales, marketing, support teams, and inevitably, as the company continues to grow, need finance, HR, ops, legal, but all along the way, you're always just trying to get to the next milestone. You know, you're trying to get feedback on the product as you're building. You know, you're trying to establish relationships with clients. You're trying to gain clients, generate some revenue. And all along the way, you know, you're keeping one eye on the bank balance to make sure you're not going to run out of money. So I think all the way through, all of us have been having to kind of play quite a careful risk balance in terms of you do need to overpromise a little bit. You do need to be ambitious and you do need to kind of give something credible to potential clients to make them want to buy it. A lot of these incumbent systems have got an awful lot of functionality in them and swapping big enterprise systems out is a big deal for a lot of these clients. You know, it's a big, expensive, high risk strategy. So not only did we need to have a system that has enough capabilities in it to at least kind of have feature parity with what we were trying to displace, but you also need to try to set it up in a way that meant that those clients don't feel like it's a really high risk strategy. And and, and one of the benefits that we have by putting Lucid as a you know, cloud-based software as a service platform, it's very easy for those customers to onboard. You know, we designed the whole thing to be API first, the software development kits in loads of different languages. And we really wanted to make it as easy as possible for these customers to just get started. Anyone can go up to our website and sign up, put your username and password in, and we'll give you a free account. You can go and start playing with the system. We're really trying to get those engineers within these companies excited about the idea of, of having all of this data at their fingertips. And in that way, we were trying to kind of reduce the barrier to entry for a lot of those customers. But all the way through, you know, we're trying to strive to kind of build new features and things. And um, at the same time, not taking on too much risk, not taking on too much technical debt, keeping an eye on the stability of the system and the performance of the system. And, you know, all the way through, you know, we've, we've had a couple of funding rounds and those injections of cash, obviously super helpful. But I think, you know, in practice, the, the biggest constraining factor we've had is, is just how quickly we hire and onboard people. I think we've probably brought on about kind of 20 grads alone since we started. But even then, you know, the, the limiting factor is whilst we've been really fortunate to, to find some, you know, really talented youngsters, you know, they don't have 10 years of industry experience. You know, they do need you know, some level of supervision, mentoring. And what we, what we were increasingly finding is that was the bottleneck. You still need to have senior engineers who are able to kind of help these people kind of come up the curve working in, you know, such a complex domain as financial services, not just on the technical side, but on the, on the kind of business side as well. It really is. And I suppose, Chris, do you remember much about those early stage customer wins? Because like they really are the lifeblood of a new of a new company. So difficult to get a long list of existing customers to point to. So were you involved in any of these kind of early stage pitching? Yeah, absolutely. And I think almost all of us probably were right at the beginning. Um, you know, having done some work in the industry in the past, you know, we did have some contacts, which were really fortunate. But I think that we were probably overestimated our ability to sell to some of these customers. You know, our initial ambition was to make a system that was, you know, we were looking at some of these online systems that have, you know, great documentation. And, you know, you just sign up, you download the code, you know, you read the docs and then off you go. And we kind of wanted to have this really light touch experience with those customers. But of course, the reality is these are these are huge organizations, you know, with massive internal processes. And what we've discovered is, you know, trying to convert these prospects into paying clients is a really long process and, and takes a lot of effort. And I think the strategy that we employed that's worked quite well is being able to kind of do proof of concepts and things with customers. We've been able to 
demo facets of the system that really do you know solve specific challenges they've got and you know we can do short paid proof of concepts with them that kind of gets them really comfortable with what the technology does and doesn't do and that's been a really great avenue for us to try and get some presence you know with these customers and then start to kind of convert them and, and upsell them onto kind of more sophisticated parts of the application but i think you know th there are so many challenges that you possibly don't think of you know within these big organizations they've got huge compliance teams procurement teams there's a lot of kind of red tape and, and paperwork that you have to get through we quite early on realized that you know we would need to get some significant kind of compliance accreditation so we, you know we went for SOC 2 as an example and I think within 12 months of us setting up the company, we were embarking on this SOC 2 process to get ourselves externally audited to show that, you know, we do have good processes, you know, we can do the whole high availability thing, BCP, all of the kind of usual questions that these big organizations ask. And I think that certainly gave us a lot of credibility, but it's been quite a long, slow, slow burn. And I think, yeah, we kind of missed out a little bit on those, you know, those initial kind of quick wins. But, you know, some of the clients we've worked with since the very beginning have been you know, fantastically positive for us. Legal in general is an example. Refinitiv and or the London Stock Exchange Group, as it now is, you know, have kind of stuck with us all the way through the process. And, and actually, you know, the feedback that we've had from them has been absolutely kind of pivotal in, in getting us to where, where we have been. So those early engagements, they weren't kind of slam dunk, you know, big wins from a kind of commercial perspective. They've turned out to be really positive from a commercial perspective. But just getting that early feedback on the product was, was probably more, more valuable to us than the revenue that it brought in. You touched on the topic of hiring a couple of times so far. Is your strategy for hiring different when you're at 100? Like, are you looking for different character profiles, different technological capabilities? Like, what changes between small and mid-sized from that perspective? Yeah, um, so... I suppose when, when we started, you know, we were taking advantage of a lot of our network. And as we brought new people in, we were trying to take advantage of their network too, to kind of, you know, to grow the company. But I can only take you so far until you start exhausting all those avenues. And inevitably, we started to advertise online and, and use some agencies to bring some people in. But I think the challenges that we faced more recently is less, less about that kind of split between, you know, um, hiring um, you know, kind of generalists versus you know specialists in specific technical areas it's more about that kind of top to bottom mix i think and what we discovered is obviously when the company was new we were specifically looking for hands-on people who could get stuff done be flexible who could you know pick up all these other things that you need to do as a startup but operations dashboards on you know meeting customers you know all this kind of thing as well as obviously you know spending most of the time running code so yeah, in that context, that initial tranche of people were most definitely kind of jack of all trades, as well as being really solid software engineers. And I think what we've discovered is as the company's grown, the layers of the team have kind of got slightly deeper, you know, as we've had to introduce kind of more structure around the teams to help coordinate it and manage people. What we found is that some of those individuals who, myself included, when I started the company, I spent all my day writing code. And these days, I'm lucky if I get a chance to fix a few bugs every now and again to keep my hand in. But my role today is much more as a kind of a development manager. And, and the same is true as a lot, of, a lot of those other individuals who kind of joined at the start with us. And we've been really successful in kind of filling in that bottom layer with some, some really brilliant grads who've joined the team over the last three years. And we've kind of filled in the middle with senior engineers. But the trickiest bit is trying to kind of maintain that level of skills kind of in the middle, that kind of, you know, the tech lead, you know, senior developer kind of level 
where not only do you need to have a good amount of software engineering experience but you know you also need those extra skills that you need around line management and you know supervising and mentoring people and I think what we found is as the company's kind of grown and those people have moved up into more kind of strategic positions the need to kind of fill that gap back in has been proved quite challenging because I think it's quite easy to underestimate how much institutional you know and and company knowledge um, people such as myself have about the product having lived through the company since it started um, it's very easy to forget that, you know, if you bring in someone new, you know, they don't have that kind of context. So a lot of what we do now, the company is this size is all around, you know, trying to kind of continually impress, you know, our values and things around, you know, quality and testing, honesty and transparency, you know, working as a team, all these things and trying to kind of reinforce that all the time is, is almost a full-time job in itself as the company gets bigger, trying to just keep that same culture and the same ethos is, is quite difficult. It's amazing, you know, I just kind of was thinking about what you were saying there. And if you've been around a company for long enough, you actually forget how much you know and how much there is to know for new people coming in. Exactly. And 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 it's one of the things that we've we've really identified over the last certainly the last year or so with everyone kind of working from home is that, you know, I think coming on to half of the employees that we have in the team today joined us in the last, you know, twelve to fourteen months or something. So there are enormous numbers of people who you know, haven't even met each other face to face and do lots of teams calls and things like that. You know, certainly there's a lot of people whose voice I recognize much better than I'd probably recognize their face. But, you know, we've had to consciously invest quite a lot of time and effort into into running training sessions every week, you know, lunch and learn things both on the technology side, but also on the kind of business knowledge side as well. Because a lot of the people that we've brought in, you know, haven't all come from a financial services background. So, you know, certainly in my own career, I found really challenging is, you know, it's full of jargon and it's really quite impenetrable for someone who's kind of come from, from a different business background. So, you know, trying to work on software in this domain can get quite daunting if you, if you don't know what all these buzzwords mean and, you know, all these acronyms. So we, we do spend quite a lot of time trying to share with some of the team, you know, what is a bond? You know, what, what does a portfolio manager do just to try and kind of get people up to speed? But yeah, it's a continuous thing that we just keep having to work on. Chris, what are the things that if you had known at the start, you might have done differently? That's a great question. Um, I think certainly on the technology side, one of my roles, you know, I kind of together with some of the other co-founders, you know, we kind of own the architecture and developed it as a company's grown. I think one of the things on the hindsight I probably would have done is maybe be a little bit less agile, ironically, about the architecture and the design of the system. I think we were so keen just to get something stood up and working that you know we were focusing very much on the business logic and the features and just getting them out the door such that you know we had something that we could demo to customers but on reflection knowing the kind of challenges that we would have you know when we grow to scale in terms of numbers of customers and and users and things we knew a lot of things from experience that we would almost certainly have to do and some of those things it would have been more efficient to bake those in from day one and just to kind of give a concrete example, you know, we had a lot of success on, on some platforms that we worked on previously where we were using queues to kind of buffer the incoming work. So whilst our customers can hit the web API with as many requests as they like, you know, we're immediately farming those off to a queue. And then this pool of backend workers that can then, you know, churn through that as quickly as they possibly can. And there's a huge number of benefits for that kind of architecture. You know, you can retry work if, you know, if one of those backend workers goes pop, you know, without a memory exception or 
or you know the box just blows up you know its power supply goes or something and you can use it to kind of damp out some of these surges in in load i think that as a kind of an example was one of the things that on reflection should have just baked in from day one because it wouldn't have been a huge incremental lift to put that into the architecture from from day zero but as time goes on, you know, and the system gets more complex, actually the cost of kind of reintroducing that at a later date gets increasingly more expensive. So I think that there were a couple of things like that that probably on reflection, we probably just should have said, you know, we know what architecture we're going to need to run a system of this scale. You know, we built these things before. We probably should have just taken, bitten the bullet, you know, accepted that it was going to take a little bit longer to do. But I think in the long run, it would have been cheaper and a bit more efficient to put that in. But I say that in hindsight, you know, we, we are where we are and we've, we've got some clients. So who knows if we'd done that, you know, maybe we wouldn't have got the demos out quick enough and you never know, right? But if it could have worked, it would have been nice. It would have saved us some grief these days, I think. Yeah. So Chris, the last question I have for you, why did the company succeed? Because let's be honest, most companies, they fail, they fall on their ass in the first 12 months. It just doesn't take off. It never happens. You're in the small minority of businesses that make it. So what were the ingredients in that success? Honestly, I think there's an element of luck to it, but there's a few aspects, I think. From an engineering perspective, we all had the same kind of mindset. We weren't going to hack stuff. You know, we would do it properly. We were going to take advantage of all of the kind of the really cool stuff that, you know, we'd seen um, done elsewhere, reading, you know, articles and listening to podcasts online and stuff. Um, we wanted to bake all of that stuff into the product. And I think that gave us a really great foundation to build everything on. But from a team perspective, I think, We've just had to be continuously vigilant to kind of problems as they emerge and, and just be reactive to those. Every six to 12 months, you could just see that, you know, the wheels starting to wobble on, on something somewhere, whether it's processes that we're using, you know, the structure of the team, which team's looking after which components, you know, the architecture, culture and things as the company grew. We just had to kind of stay continuously on top of all of that stuff and just be ready to kind of jump in and kind of not be afraid to change stuff. You know, uh, I think probably... In terms of the task management side of things, you know, figuring out what people are working on, when you've got eight people, you can get the whole company in a stand up every morning. You don't even need post-it notes on whiteboards, right? You could just crack on and do it. But we've continuously had to evolve that process as the teams got bigger and, and we need to do increasingly kind of sophisticated tools and things like that to just help the business run and, and keep visibility of what's, what's happening. So, you know, we're getting increasingly dependent upon, you know, tracking KPIs and things like that as the company's got bigger because... It's just simply not possible for any individual to have the whole machine and the whole, you know, the whole business mind at one time. So certainly for me personally, that's been, that's been really exciting. There's a lot of similarities between trying to solve a technical problem with software as there is to solving kind of organizational problems with people and structure. So it's been quite rewarding to apply some of the same problem solving techniques to kind of organizational design, actually. And it's been, been quite fun. Great stuff. Uh, Chris, the majority of people that listen to this podcast are software engineers. So if you're on the lookout for a new job, I think maybe check out finborn.com. Yes, please do. Yeah, we've got a careers page up there. Come and have a look. We are always interested in people. There are some open job specs on there all the time, but also we also welcome speculative applications as well. If you like the sound of what we do and want to come work with us, we'd love to hear from anybody. Fantastic. Chris, thank you so much for your time today. It's been super interesting. No, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Fantastic. So production, as always, by Albina Krasteva, with editing by Adnan Tukar and music by Robert Cooney. We'll catch you next time on the Story of Software.